Amen. Wonderful time of worship tonight. We hope those of you that are joining from your homes were able to engage and join right in with us here. Acts chapter 15 tonight. Growing pains. <laughs> That's what the church was going through at this time. Obviously, growing pains. Anytime we grow, there's pain involved. Whether it's individual or as a church in our lives, anything we go through in, in growth is also going to have accompanying pain with it. You cannot experience growth without pain. And what God was doing was something so unique, so remarkable. He was building an entity called the church in which Jew and Gentile were to exist as one. This had never happened before. This, this was something that you and I can't fully appreciate, especially from a Jewish perspective, how hard that would have been, how difficult. I mean, the center of, of worship of God was always Jerusalem and, and Jewish. And now the center of worship is no longer Jerusalem. And now there's as many, if not more, Gentiles in the church than Jews. And, and the center of worship has moved from Jerusalem to Antioch. And, and both are getting used to this, right? It, it's a whole new thing that God is doing which also reminds us not only do we have to be willing to experience pain if we're going to grow, but we have to learn to be adaptable. We as Christians have to learn to be adaptable. God is always moving and working, and we've got to be willing to not just get set in our ways. Even while Jesus was on earth, he, he sort of even went through this with his disciples. He instructed them at one time when he was with them, look, you don't need to take a bag with you. You don't need to take extra clothing with you. You don't need to take a sword with you. I'll make sure that everywhere, you, I'll take care of it, right? As he was getting closer to the time where he was going to die and go to the cross and eventually ascend back to heaven, he changed plans. He said, from now on out, when I'm gone, you're going to have to take stuff with you and you're going to have to protect yourself. You're, all, they had to learn to adapt. It wasn't always the same. And that's what the early church was going through, was having to learn how to deal with all these things. And, and one of the things that we've seen primarily up to this point that the early church had to deal with was the persecution from the world coming from outside. But there's also other growing pains. And that's when the church is having to learn to sort of come together and unify together in spite of its diversity and work through things from within. That's where we're going today. This has nothing to do now with outside stuff from the world. This has to do with those who claim to be inside and having to work through some things. In fact, this whole chapter is really about disagreements. And one of the things that we have to know as reality is that even like in the early church, I mean, the Spirit of God was being poured out. God was doing miracles and supernatural things and people were being saved and 
Christians were being discipled and strengthened, even in the midst of that kind of environment, there were still disagreements because we're still human and we're still sinful. And no church and no group of Christians is ever going to have no disagreements. What we have to learn to do is to figure out from God's perspective, how do we work through those? How do we deal with our disagreements in a Christ-honoring way, in a way that the Bible teaches us we deal with disagreements because we're going to have them. And we're going to have them amongst good Christians, as we're going to see at the end of the chapter. It doesn't matter how great a relationship you have with somebody, eventually you're going to disagree about something. So the question isn't, are you going to have disagreements? The question is, how are you going to resolve those disagreements? How are you going to work through them? And so notice in chapter 15, the first thing was really about the integrity of the gospel. And obviously, there's nothing more important than maintaining the integrity of the gospel. So some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Now, first of all, notice again how prominent a role teaching plays in the New Testament. It, over and over again. And, and the reason is, is because teachers have influence. Teachers can sway people, which is why the Bible says that those of us who teach are held to a higher standard. Amen. We are more accountable before God than you are that don't teach because of our position before God. And there's only two kinds of teaching and teachers. Those who teach correctly, those who teach the word correctly, and those who teach falsely and do not teach the word. And obviously, you and I know that this does not line up with the gospel. As it says over in verse 11, they believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, period. Grace through faith, that's it, no works. So when these teachers were coming along saying, nope, you can't be saved unless you are circumcised. Here comes a disagreement, right? And this also reminds us that there are times in our life and in the times of our church's life where a fight, if you will, is necessary. Now, we don't go looking for fights. We don't go looking for battles. But there are things worth fighting for. And one of the things always worth fighting for as a Christian is the integrity of the gospel. We've got to be having that nailed down. So notice when Paul, verse 2, and Barnabas, again, this team, had a major argument and debate with them. The church then appointed Paul and Barnabas and some others from among them to go up and meet with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. It became known as a Jerusalem council about this point of disagreement. 
That was an important word that I underlined there in my Bible, disagreement, dispute, debate, call it whatever you want to. There was a disagreement, okay? How are we saved? Are we saved simply by grace through faith or is there something more that has to be attached to salvation? And you realize here that if they would have handled this differently, who knows what would have happened to the church? Because if they would have added works of any kind to the gospel, even at this point, oh my goodness. And it, and it shows again how even Satan was trying to get in and, and derail the progress of the church because God was moving and bringing people to faith and it was because of the power of his word and the truth of his word. And if that truth of his word would have been compromised at this point, then the whole church would have been compromised. So disagreement. How did they handle this? So they were on their way, verse 3, by the church. They passed through Phoenician Samaria, relating at length the conversion of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were turning to God, and it was bringing great joy to all the brothers, which is what hearing about people being saved should do. It should bring joy to us when we hear that people are turning to God and being saved. And also, our own salvation should always be a source of continual joy. What did Jesus say to his followers when they came back and he had given them power over demonic forces and to be able to heal and they were so excited and full of joy? He says, that's fine, but don't make that the primary source of your joy. Make the primary source of your joy that your name stand written in heaven. That's where your primary source of joy is. Never get over your salvation, Jesus is saying. And then you know the other parables of the lost coin and, and all of that and how Jesus taught that there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner that comes to know the Lord. Joy should always be attached with salvation, whether it's other people being saved or even our own. We should never get over the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. When they arrived in Jerusalem, verse 4, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. They reported all the things that God had done. But again, some from this sect or religious party said it is necessary for the Gentiles to be circumcised. So we know first five verses is really about this disagreement. How do we handle the disagreement between us? Verse 6. Both the apostles and the elders met together, and here's the next word that begins with D, deliberate. Literally means to search out about this matter. When there is a disagreement, there should be a time of deliberation, of searching out the matter to come to a consensus of opinion about something. Okay, to some kind of understanding, even if it comes to the point where two parties have to agree to disagree, at least there's been a time of deliberation, okay? 
This, I think, is one of Peter's finest moments in verse 7. After there had been much debate or deliberation, Peter, one of the leaders of the early church, stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God chose me to preach. First of all, Peter is saying, I didn't choose this for myself. God made a highly deliberate choice to place me in this position. Now, the reason I want to bring that out is that's true for every one of us. If you're a Christian, God has chosen you, and it is a highly deliberate, purposeful choice of what he's calling you to in, in this life. Amen. It's not haphazard. It's not coincidence. God has made a highly deliberate choice of why he's asking you, inviting you, calling you to do something for him, okay? And Peter says, he called me to preach. So, purpose statement, they would hear the message of the gospel and believe because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. That's how people are brought to faith is by the power of the word of God. And then he goes on to say, listen, God knows the heart. So God knows whose heart has truly received his word and opened up their heart to Jesus as Savior. You and I can confess anything. We can say, I'm saved, I've accepted Christ, but only God knows the reality of whether that's real or genuine or not. Because we know the Bible teaches and we know even from our own lives, there's a lot of false confession out there. There, there's a lot of people who will say and have said down through history, I'm a Christian, but they're really not. And so Peter's just saying, listen, God knows the heart. God knows whose hearts are his. And here's what God will do when he knows that a heart has truly turned to him. He will give them, verse 8, the Holy Spirit. That's the seal. That's the evidence. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, bears witness with our human spirit that we are God's children through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And notice Peter's saying, listen, guys and gals, this is exactly what happened to us, and now God is doing the same thing to the Gentiles so that, verse 9, he's making no distinction between them and us. God never intended for two churches a Gentile church, and a Jewish church. God wanted these people to learn to come together as one, and God is the same way today. God doesn't want this church for this group and this church for this group, which is what we've seen throughout history, right? God wants to see us be able to come together as one under the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not many different churches it's one true church and he is cleansing hearts by faith purifying our hearts producing an undiluted undistracted heart how does he do that as we positively respond to his revelation that's how God gets rid of the dilution and and the distractions of our heart is by us continually responding as he reveals himself to us. So he says, we should now not be putting God to the test, verse 10, by placing on the neck of the disciples a burden or a yoke that 
we couldn't even bear and that God never intended. You and I have to be careful in our life that whatever, in a sense, we are picking up and carrying are burdens and responsibilities and yokes that God wants us to carry, not that we feel we should, but God doesn't, or that others feel we should and God doesn't. Because again, Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You won't feel like you're weighted down when we're doing what God wants us to do in his timing, in his place, with his power. So they're making a really important point here. We don't want to add more than what God wants to add. I will just say this, because I could use all kinds of different, it's one of the reasons why at the Oasis Church, we don't get caught up in a lot of stuff that I just don't believe just adds to the burden of, of things. So for instance, I, I guess I will use this as an example. And, and, there are many churches that if you were going to be baptized this Saturday, you would have to go through like classes, like weeks and weeks of classes in order to be baptized. I think that is a, such an unnecessary burden. And here's why I say that. Because in the early church, they didn't have to go through classes before they were baptized. All they had to do was accept Jesus Christ and say, hey, there's water. Let's, can I be? Absolutely. Come on down to water. We add so many things that makes Christianity burdensome. And then people begin to think, well, Christianity must be burdensome. No. It's what man has added, not what God is saying should happen. And we have to be careful in the church that we are not adding burdens and yokes to people of all these ex expectations. I mean, I've had people who come into the other and say, hey, I, I want to be a member here. But we don't really have membership. You don't have membership. No, because the Bible basically teaches if you're a child of God and this is your church, then you're a member. And you, yeah, you should be here. You should serve. You, but, but we don't, and, and so we're not going to take you through membership classes. Because you don't find that in the Bible. And that's just adding a burden that is unnecessary to your life. Sorry, I got off on a little bit. <laughs> now, here's the point. <laughs> There's disagreements. And the way they handled it was through deliberation. But in the midst of their deliberation... Notice something that was key to making sure deliberation went well. Verse 12, the whole group kept quiet and listened. Whoa, there's our problem when we, this is why many times disagreements aren't handled well because we don't stop, keep quiet and listen to one another. And that's the whole thing about deliberation is that both parties need to feel like they are being hurt. Both parties. Not just one, both parties. And that was true as they deliberated. So that's important. They explained all that was going on through the Gentiles. And then James, verse 13, another, the Lord's brother, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem stands up 
and says, listen, Simeon or Peter has explained how God first concerned himself to select from among the Gentiles, and then he drops a bomb in the midst of the room. He uses a phrase that would have been a touchstone for every Jewish person there, and it's the phrase, a people for his name. Every Jew there would have, first of all, probably gasped when they heard James use that phrase. And secondly, like I said, you could have heard a pin drop because that was a phrase that in the Old Testament was used exclusively for the people of God, the Jewish people of the Old Testament. And now James is saying, no, 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 no longer can it be just applied to us it must be applied to the Gentiles who've accepted Christ as well. They also are a people for his name. What's that mean, by the way? It means that God puts his name on us. That we're not just the creations of God. That we are now the children of God and we have now been adopted into his family and been given his name. Let's pause there for a minute. That's a wonder. That's why John says in 1 John 3, 1, brothers and sisters, what quality of love God the Father has bestowed upon us that we are called the children of God. And indeed, we are God's children. Think about it. A child of God in his family, adopted by him forever and ever. See, God promised Gentile inclusion in the Old Testament, and now James is simply saying, by quoting the Old Testament there in verse 16 and 17, God's now performing it. He's fulfilling what he promised, which is what God always does. Therefore, again, what's their conclusion? Verse 19, we should not put any extra difficulty for those Jew Gentiles who are turning to God. And so look at verse 22. The apostles, the elders, the whole church decided, yep, this is what we need to do. So notice the three words that start with D, disagreement, deliberation, and then decision. That's how they handled the disagreement. And they came to a consensus of opinion that they were going to write a letter to the Gentiles in Antioch. They were going to have Paul and Barnabas along with two others, new team that was forming, Judas and Silas, to go down and accompany Paul and Barnabas and take this letter. And this letter was primarily saying, you do not have to be circumcised in order to be saved. We are, we are not saying that. In fact, if you go back to verse 11, basically the letter is saying what Peter said in verse 11. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Now they do add some things at the end of this letter and you may think, well, why are they adding these? Are they saying then that again, this is adding to salvation? No. These are practices that were done in the pagan temples. So this is not saying you have to do this in order to be saved. 
They are recommending to these Gentiles, you've got to break away from these Gentile pagan practices that you've been doing in your pagan temples all these years, and you've got to begin to live a distinct and different life from the life that you used to live. So they were dismissed, verse 30, they went down to Antioch. When they got there, Judas and Silas, along with Paul and Barnabas, who were prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with a long speech. Why? Because they needed to repair the damage that had happened by these people going around saying, unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. Because notice in verse 25, or I'm sorry, verse 24, what happened when these people went around teaching false stuff? It says they caused confusion and they were upsetting the minds of people. And that's exactly what false teaching will do. It will cause confusion, it will not lead to clarity, and it will upset people, obviously. And so they needed to go down and, again, sort of repair the damage and relay a firm foundation upon which they could grow stronger. And I want you to note now in these last few verses of this chapter that in spite of, again, the growing pains, at the end of it all, the church is growing stronger and people are growing stronger. We're going to have our stuff. But, but God doesn't want us to just sort of throw up our hands when we have disputes and disagreements and debates amongst each other. Here's the, here's the thing. God doesn't need any of us. God chooses to use people, right? But God will also not allow human beings to thwart his plan and purpose. God will keep building his church, and he's not going to let people and human beings and, and sinful human beings at times and bad choices and disagreements, he's not going to ever let that thwart his plan and purpose. He's going to move his plan and purpose forward in spite of us. So we, we can't, like, you know, upset the plans and purposes of God like he's up there in heaven wringing his hands going, oh, man, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to accomplish what I want to accomplish. No, he wants to use us to accomplish it, but he doesn't have to. He will make sure that what he has revealed in his word happens exactly as he said it's going to happen, whether it's with us or it's without us, okay? Paul and Barnabas, verse 35, stayed in Antioch teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord because that's how people were being strengthened. That's how the church was growing. But let's go to this final part of the chapter because this deals with another disagreement that doesn't end so well and let me say this this again is an example of two strong Christians who were walking with the Lord and yet they could not come to an agreement and this disagreement actually caused them to separate and part from one another was that God's will no that would never be God's will, but God allowed it in his providence and God actually used it because now instead of one strong team for him, 
he was now going to have two. And the church was going to continue to grow. And what we're going to see also through this is that God healed some hearts and changed some hearts over time. And that's what God will do if we're open and humble and teachable. So notice verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every town where we proclaim the word of the Lord to see how they're doing because the work of the Lord is never done. No church, no Christian ever gets to the point where it's like, I'm good, you can just let me be and leave me alone. I don't have to keep growing and no, never. Repetition. Barnabas wanted to bring John called Mark along with them too. And let me stay, say this. Let's not forget, John Mark was Barnabas's first cousin. So there's family stuff going on there. Maybe some family pressure being put on Barnabas. But Paul, verse 38, insisted. In fact, in the Greek, he kept on insisting that they should not take along this one who had left them, literally deserted them. That's what the word means. He was a deserter. He quit on them while they were in Pamphylia and had not accompanied them in the work. Notice verse 39. They had such a sharp, by the way, that word means painful. This disagreement between these two brothers, because they had been a team, a partnership for a long time and effective and successful, it pained them to see that they were not on the same page about this. But they weren't. They had two differences of opinion about whether to take John Mark or not. I'm not here to debate who was right in that. I'll leave that up to you. Because I will say this, and I'm not trying to sit the fence, I can actually see both sides. I mean, I, I can see Paul being someone that is so task-oriented and wanting to do a job so well for God that, that you can't tolerate those that are not fully in and fully committed. And much, I think, of the problems that they had early on in Pamphylia were actually caused by Mark. So there's that. But then I can see Barnabas' side. Again, the son of encouragement. The one who goes, well, okay, he messed up, but doesn't he deserve a second chance? You know, doesn't he deserve to prove himself again? And you can see both sides, you see. But they could not come to a consensus of opinion, so they parted company. Whew, that had to be painful. Barnabas took along Mark and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and set out, commended to the grace of the Lord by the brothers and sisters. He passed through Syria and Cilicia, notice, doing what? Strengthening the churches, because churches always need to be strengthened. Every one of us in the church needs to keep growing stronger. We will never in our history at the Oasis ever get to a place where we should not be growing stronger and increasing in spiritual strength. That is always going to be what my focus is as the pastor of this church. How can we grow 
stronger and strengthen ourselves in the Lord. But I want to come back to this. First of all, we know through reading things that happened in Cyprus after Barnabas and Mark went there that they were a very effective team and partnership for God. God used them greatly. But obviously we also know that Paul and Silas were used by God greatly as well. In fact, probably the rest of the book of Acts is mostly about Paul and Silas and their missionary journey. It doesn't mean that God was emphasizing or saying, now that meant that Paul was right and Barnabas was wrong in this. No, God simply chooses who he's going to spotlight for particular purposes. And him spotlighting Paul for the rest of the book of Acts has nothing to do with what happened here. Okay? But here's what I want to focus on in closing tonight. I want to talk about this young man, Mark, for a moment. Let's not forget that somewhere along the way, he failed. I mean, Barnabas does not argue with Paul about the fact that Mark didn't fail. Mark failed big time. So let's say that out loud for all of our sakes. And here's why. Because all of us, at some point in our life, we're going to fail the Lord. But Mark didn't stay there. That's the key. Although a righteous man may fall seven times, he gets back up every time. Proverbs. So what we learn about this is I don't want to focus so much on the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. I want to focus on what happened to this young man that really caused this disagreement between these two great saints of God. We know that Mark came back from that failure. And I want us to be encouraged that we need to learn to come back from our failures and not allow when we fail, not if we fail, we will, that when we fail to get us to a place where we stay down because that's what our spiritual enemy wants us to do. God wants us to learn from our failure, grow from our failures, and get back up. Because let's not forget who this Mark was. This Mark was the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. That's pretty impressive. God only chose four men in history to write the history of his son on earth. And this young man was one of those four. And we know that Matthew and John were two of Jesus' 12 disciples. So then you only have two others besides them that God gave the privilege and honor of writing a gospel, and Mark's one of them. And then I think this is even, for me, even a little bit more moving. Somewhere along the line, Paul and Mark 
They got back together again. Paul's heart had to change and soften towards Mark. Because we know that because at the end of the book of Colossians, Paul says, oh yeah, Mark's on one of my ministry teams. And then he makes this amazing statement at the end of the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 11. You can look at it for yourself. And what makes this amazing is this is at the end of Paul's life. 2 Timothy is the last letter Paul will ever write before he's executed. He's got very, very short amount of time left on earth, and he knows it. So, you know, they say lasting words are lasting words. What does Paul say about Mark at the end of the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 11? He tells Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you when you come to me, for he is a great help to me in ministry. Whoa! Here's the guy that said, I ain't taking that young man with me. He, nope, he deserted us. He walked away, he quit. And now, he's like, nope. That young man, he's a great help to me. So it shows, again, when you and I are open, we are humble, we are teachable before the Lord, how the Lord can change our hearts, not only towards him, but towards others, and how God can work on our hearts, and how God took the heart of even the great apostle Paul who wanted nothing to do with Mark at one time in his life and now says, oh no, if I had to choose somebody to be in ministry with me, I want Mark there. Now obviously that also meant Mark grew up a little bit. He wasn't the same young man, obviously at that point, as he was when this disagreement happened. So there's all kinds of ebbing and flowing going on here and again, People have to adapt, and we have to change, and we have to be willing for God to change us. And sometimes that even means God has to be able to change us in, in how our hearts are towards somebody else. But most importantly, I want us to know that that young man, Mark, he grew stronger from his failure. And God used him in his life in a mighty way. If you failed the Lord or whatever and you've allowed that failure to sort of keep you in the background and keep you down and keep you second-guessing yourself and afraid to put yourself back out there because you're afraid you're going to fail again, get rid of all of that junk in your mind and those lies from the devil and get back up out there. And don't worry about it. Yeah, we're all going to fail again. But we learn and we grow and we just keep on moving on. And that's what you see happening in the early church. Yes, they had pressure from outside, but they also had stuff that they had to deal with that was bubbling up from the inside. Disagreements galore, because we're people. But Acts chapter 15 reminds us this is how we should handle it. And even when we have to just agree to disagree, we move on and we don't let it stop us from fulfilling the calling that God has made a highly deliberate choice upon our life. We keep on going. And that's what God wants to see in his people.
that we never quit, we never give up, we never throw in the towel. We keep on keeping on. Father, we thank you tonight for the encouragement, God, from all of these folks detailed in this chapter. God, how practical your word is, how relevant it is. Because every relationship in our life, God, is going to have disagreements. We need to learn how to resolve those disagreements, how to handle them properly, and how to do so for your honor and glory. Because, God, we now are a people for your name. You have made us your child through our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. You've adopted us into your family. God, what a privilege, what an honor. May we always hold our heads up high as the children of God. May we realize, Lord, just how special of a position we have. Not to, not to raise up our pride and, and to become arrogant and, and boastful, but Lord, actually to humble us, to realize, God, that all that we have through you, none of us deserve it, but God, you poured out your love upon us anyway. And God, may we never, ever get over our salvation. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless. We'll see you on Sunday.